You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Yesterday was my 40th birthday. (laughs) Which is a very sobering thing. I do not remember my dad turning 30, but I do remember my dad turning 40. I remember black balloons. And I remember cards that said, over the hill. Very sobering thing for me yesterday. Over what hill? (laughs) Well, over the hill of life, it seems. The first half of life, you go up the hill. And then about age 40, you're at the top of the hill. And then it's all downhill from there. So being over the hill means you're over halfway to death. And that's only if you live to a certain degree, and don't pass early. And we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So yesterday was not only a 40th birthday, but a mid-pandemic birthday. And now this morning, we open for the first time to 2 Timothy, which is Paul's final letter before his death. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he's on the brink of his execution. And he's aware of that. He says to Timothy in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, the time of my departure has come. And all indications are he was right about that. He was killed shortly thereafter. But far more significant than one of your pastors now being 40 for the first time. (laughs) Your pastors have been in their 30s and 20s until Nick had his pandemic birthday and became 30. And now I got my pandemic birthday. I'm 40. You have a pastor in his 40s now. Far more significant than that is this moment in the life of our church, our five-and-a-half-year-old church, our church, which is a people, not a building, which we know since we didn't own a building until January, our church, which has barely used said building since we purchased it in January. Our church, which last gathered here together all at once to worship Jesus back on March 8th, more than six months ago. And as we as a church find ourselves in this critical season, as we come into this fall, with what has been for many of us the most abnormal six months of our lives, with no clear end in sight yet, many of us are starving for the grace that God gives, for the way that God feeds and shapes our souls in the regular face-to-face interactions with Christians in the life of the church. Fellowship is a vital means of God's grace. And in our weekly corporate gatherings, in our community groups, in our life groups, God shapes And he nourishes our souls, and he gives stability to our souls. So if you feel spiritually empty or sluggish now or in recent months, it should be no surprise. God actually does something for us and in us and through us when we gather together as his people. There's no small thing to have been dispersed like we have. 
To one degree or another, we are all feeling the spiritual effects of these last six months dispersed to some degree. And now we come to the fall and we ask, will we coast? As we gather here for the first time together, will we re-engage in whatever measures are appropriate? So we come to a very important juncture in the life of our church here today. And 2 Timothy is not just up next in our series of expositions. This is an especially well-timed word for this moment in the life of our church. As we've been dispersed and as we have pandemic fatigue and we have the winter bearing down on us, we might say that these past months were far easier than the months to come because in Minnesota, winter sends us indoors. A pandemic brings the consciousness of death to the fore in new ways. And every winter is a kind of rehearsal for death. And in 2 Timothy, Paul contemplates his own death. And this letter is a bold call for endurance and for holding fast, like we sang, in the face of affliction and suffering and inconvenience and discomfort and fatigue. So I think this letter is just what we need right now as a church. And God was very faithful in our psalm series. So thankful for the psalm series here these last six months that got us through. And we as your pastors feel there's a fresh calling and a fresh word for us here that God has now in 2 Timothy for the fall. So this morning, as we start into 2 Timothy, we look especially at verses 1 and 2, which Josh just read. But I also then want to give us a preview of what God might have in store for us as a church this fall in this particular season through 2 Timothy. So I want to draw our attention to one truth in verse 1, and then another truth in verse 2, and then look at the bigger picture together of this letter and get a foretaste of how 2 Timothy maps on to our moment as a church. So verse 1, Christ promises life beyond this world. That's number one, from verse one. Christ promises life beyond this world. I think verse one here meets us with freshness in a way that maybe it didn't the last time you read 2 Timothy, or maybe the first time you read 2 Timothy, some years ago. Look at verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. In 2020, we are surrounded by voices that tell us overtly or subtly that this life is all there is. Whether it's conversations with neighbors or coworkers, even family, messages on the big screen, the small screen, the pocket screen, what we read online, what we hear on the radio, what you hear in podcasts, at every turn, we meet the subtle assumption, if not the overt message, that this life is all there is, or at least it's all we can live in light of. All we know is what we see and hear and smell and touch and taste. So get all you can out of this life. 
because there's no surety of eternity beyond it. But here in 2 Timothy, as the Apostle Paul is facing death, what's so sweet about him saying this in verse 1 of 2 Timothy? He's facing death, and he begins with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Death now looks as real as it's ever looked to the Apostle Paul. Just as to some of us, death has seemed and felt more real than it ever has in our lives in these last six months. Death is coming. Death is certain. And now that is clear that it's near for Paul. And in that moment, he clings to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He says more in chapter 1, verse 10. Look there. He says that the grace of God now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What does it mean that Jesus abolished death? Jesus has defeated the very thing our world fears most, death. He has emptied death of its power. He has defanged death. Having conquered death by rising again, he has invited us to be united with him by faith and to say with him, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? But Jesus didn't just abolish death or destroy it or set it aside. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In a world that is scared to death about its mortality, Jesus brings immortality. He brought the answer that every living human being is looking for. He himself took the death we deserved that we might share in the life he has as fully God and fully man, namely eternal life. And oh, how we, and oh, how our world needs to hear Paul talk of the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, verse 1, and of the immortality of verse 10, and of the eternal hope, chapter 2, verse 10, and of Christ's heavenly kingdom, chapter 4, verse 18, and of the hope of eternal life, Titus 1, chapter 2. That's the plan for later in the fall. We'll go to Titus after 2 Timothy. Now, make no mistake, Jesus does promise life in the present, not just eternal life to come. We saw last year as we went through 1 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8, that godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Yes, there is life, and there is life to the full, Jesus says in John 10, 10, here and now, in Christ. But that's not the main emphasis in 2 Timothy. As Paul writes from a Roman jail, certain that soon enough they're going to take his head off. The promise of life now, in this age, is precious. We don't scoff at the promise of life now. And the promise of eternal life, in the end, will dwarf the promise 
of life now. So Cities Church, Jesus promises life beyond this world. Let's not be snookered by a secular society and its propaganda. Everywhere we turn, the assumptions are increasingly secular. God is increasingly ignored in public discourse and polite conversation, if not said to be out of bounds altogether. And without the Word of God in our lives and the people of God in our lives reminding us that the sights and sounds and tastes and smells and textures of this physical world, real as they are, are not all that is real. We will be deceived. And this is one of the greatest deceptions in our day, and perhaps the deepest, that this world and this life is all there is. But Christ promises life beyond this world. So that's number one, verse one. Christ promises life beyond this world. Number two, Christ provides family beyond this world. That's verse two. This is so significant. As we gather here together for the first time in these months, and as we hope to have a pattern here together in the coming months, verse two, Paul writes to Timothy, my beloved child. It's amazing to see how Paul talks to Timothy as his son in the faith. Have you noticed this before? The same thing with Titus. First Timothy, chapter one, verse two, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. First Timothy 1.18, he calls him my child. In Titus, chapter one, verse four, he calls Titus my true child in a common faith. And then here, chapter two, chapter one, verse two, my beloved child. We'll see it again, chapter two, verse one, my child. To be clear, Timothy and Titus are not Paul's biological sons nor his legally adopted sons. They are more than that. Get that? They are more than biological or legally adopted sons. They are true sons, he says. Not like sons. He says they are true sons, which shows the kind of relationships that God means to create and to sustain in the life of his church. This kind of familial and deeper than familial bond is not unique to Paul and Timothy and Titus. Rather, this is the offering and indeed the norm for those who claim one true Lord as Christ and him as their greatest allegiance. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 50. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's in the presence of his human family. And then he says, Matthew 19, 29, everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold. A hundredfold. Look around, a hundredfold, and will inherit, here it is again, eternal life. So in Christ, we have in common the single most important reality in the universe. Sharing biology and blood does not 
compare. Sharing the same alma mater does not compare. Sharing the same neighborhood, the same city, the same state, the same nation, the same skin color, the same subculture, the same political causes, the same occupation, the same hobbies, does not compare to sharing the same Lord in Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, and I mean that when I say it, brothers and sisters in Christ, we share in common the most unrivaled, single most important reality in the universe and in all of history. We have God himself in Jesus Christ. Do you know what potential we have in this room and on the lawn out there and watching the live stream, members of City's Church, for the most significant, most challenging, most strengthening, most precious relationships on the planet So as we move back into fresh degrees of life together in these coming weeks, and I know some of you guys have asked, how do I join the church? That's been on hold for six months, and we're offering that again. If you want to move toward membership afresh or complete that journey, we're ready to do that now. We're ready to resume baby dedications. Uh, Some of our life groups and, and community groups are now doing less Zoom than they were previously, and we're hoping to have these corporate gatherings here on Sunday morning. So we're moving back in, in careful measures, into the regular life of the church in ways that are fitting in this season. And as that happened, let me ask, do you have relationships like this? My beloved child, my true child in the faith, my true child in a common faith, my true sister my true brother, I cannot promise you that kind of depth, that these kind of relationships closer than a brother will happen here for sure. They are not automatic. They are gifts from God to be cultivated over time. But I can promise you this. There is no better place to find such friendships. You may not find the relationships you've always wanted at this church, but in Christ, there is no better place to look for them. May God be pleased to continue to grant them here at our church. Number three, Christ protects his people in moments like these. So Christ promises life beyond the world, and Christ provides family beyond this world. And now, three themes from the rest of the letter under this heading that Christ protects his people. He protects his church in special ways in seasons like this, in trying seasons, in times of unrest and uncertainty. And so here we're asking What might we find this fall in 2 Timothy that God is speaking to us in particular in 2020, in this moment? So here are are three refrains from the letter 
that meet us in our moment. These aren't, these aren't three things that are mentioned once and then Paul moves on. These are three refrains. These are three major themes in 2 Timothy that I think meet us in particular in these days as we come back here this fall. Number one, Christ calls us to endure as others turn away. Christ calls us to endure as others turn away. There are times in life and in the church when it seems like very few people are defecting. And there are other times where it seems like more than a few. And Paul wrote 2 Timothy in what seems to be a lean season, we might say. It did not seem like revival. There's not revival in the background of 2 Timothy. Times felt tough. These were perhaps thin times for the church. Paul writes in chapter 3 about those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Chapter 3, verse 6. And he warns in chapter 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will cultivate for themselves feeds, or they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But this wasn't distant for Paul. It's not like he's prophesying, oh, this will happen in the distance, and this is happening way over there. This is very personal. It's painfully close for the Apostle Paul as he's on death's doorstep and he writes 2 Timothy. He says in chapter 1, verse 15, all who are in Asia turned away from me. Okay, whether he's not talking about the continent, (laughs) but still that sounds really sweeping. All who are in Asia turned away from me. And if that doesn't sound heartbreaking enough, he mentions Demas in chapter 4. This is the same Demas who is part of his team. He mentions Demas in Colossians 4 and in Philemon as being a part of his team. And he says in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Can you sense the ache in Paul when he says that Demas is in love with this present world? As pastors, we have seen much good and much difficulty during these six months of pandemic, these unusual times. Let's not, let's not pretend. This has been a trial. The church is being sifted like wheat. For some, these have been precious days of new depths of seriousness and focus and devotion. Some will think fondly back on 2020. Not on everything of 2020, but in the midst of the trial, what God did, how we brought new focus, new seriousness, new devotion. And for others, these times have eroded or hollowed out the heart of faith. The roots are loose. Some are turning away. And you might feel that in particular, depending on your context, your network of people, you might feel like many are turning away. Or you may say drifting. 
Maybe it feels more like drifting. Just apart from the, the means of fellowship, from the rhythms of life that sustain us and shape us, apart from the church gathering, you might see many who are drifting. It's a key moment. Will the drifting cease as the church resumes its patterns and habits? And in a day in which the ways are parting, Paul's call to Timothy is to endure. That's a key word in 2 Timothy, endure. Paul himself endures, he says, with eternal glory in view, chapter 2, verse 10. And he promises of Christ, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him, chapter 2, verse 12. And he says in chapter 2, verse 24, that the Lord's servant must be patiently enduring evil. And he mentions, chapter 3, verse 11, the persecutions he himself endured, which are to be example for Timothy and for us. And he says to Timothy directly, chapter 3, verse, four, three, verse 14, Timothy, continue, endure, continue. Don't drift away, don't fall away. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And as we already saw, chapter 4, he says, the time is coming when many will not endure sound teaching. But, verse 5, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So over and over again in this letter, as Paul comes to the the end of his life, and he leaves this legacy, this final will and testament, this farewell address to Timothy. He says, endure, endure, stay the course, hold fast. As we're saying, he will hold you fast. Jesus will hold you. So Cities Church, in these days when some are drifting away, and not just distantly, people you may know, you see them drifting away, like Demas in love with the world, Let's follow Paul to the end where he says, chapter 4, verse 7, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's finish this segment of the race that God has put before us in this season. Let's keep the faith together. God means for us to do this together, not on our own, as we come into this fresh season of church life. So there's the first theme here in 2 Timothy, the big one, the, uh, the call to endure. Number two, he calls us to speak the truth with grace as others spew lies, venom, and folly. He calls us to speak the truth with grace as others spew lies, venom, and folly. He is striking the contrast here between what Paul says about the false teaching and how it goes, and then what he calls Timothy to do and be. First of all, he gives a negative. In several, several situations, over and over again, Paul gives a negative of what the false teaching is like and what he wants Timothy and the church not to be like. And it, and it may be different than what you think. Chapter 2, verse 14, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, only ruins the hearers. Chapter 2, verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. You ever come across irreverent babble? For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Chapter 2, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Ever seen one of those recently? 
you know they breed quarrels. So it sounds like the false teaching in Ephesus, where Timothy is, is much more like the daily drivel of social media and of television than it is like formal teaching. Sure, some false teachers have pulpits, no doubt. But most are not preachers in a formal sense. They creep into households and capture weak women, Paul says in 3.6. They sow seeds in polite conversation. They don't mount a pulpit for half an hour. They fill our ears for the, the other 120 waking hours of the week. Think of that. Half an hour we get right here. And what? 90 hours of other influences? A recent article of the Gospel Coalition observes that the church is increasingly just one voice among many speaking into a Christian's life. A church's worship habits may occur, may occupy two hours of a Christian's week, but podcasts, radio shows, cable news, social media, streaming entertainment, and other forms of media account for upwards, this is in the pandemic here, upwards of 90 hours of their week. Some of us are consuming these forms of media twice as much as we're working our full-time job. And, th- and, and this, is, this has escalated significantly in the last six months with the pandemic. So the author of the article, Brett McCracken, he also observes, he says, COVID-19 has further accelerated the already troubling tendency of Christians being more shaped by online life and its partisan ideological ecosystem than by church life and its formational practices. In quarantine, Christians have been driven yet farther into a fully online existence. Think about how much this is true of you or not. In quarantine, Christians have been driven yet farther into a fully online existence, drinking from the often toxic well of internet discourse in ways that poison their souls largely devoid of meaningful immersion in Christian formative practices, Christians are instead being formed in whatever online echo chamber they call home. And he says, this is perhaps the biggest meta threat facing the church in the 21st century. So brothers and sisters, social media, as you know, can be a cesspool. Wisdom for some is avoiding it altogether. For others, there's a calling. There's an opportunity to receive good, to do good, to speak truth, to have some small influence over friends and family and others. But don't just float in without intentionality. Your mood may be encumbered. Your hope may be taxed. Your vision of the world may be skewed, which in microcosm is what it's like to live in this world, in this age. But this is really important to note. In the ancient context of 2 Timothy in Ephesians, 
Paul doesn't just say to Timothy or to the Christians in Ephesus, he doesn't say, plug your ears. He doesn't say, cover your eyes. He doesn't say, close your mouths and don't talk. He has something positive to say. He says, use words to give grace, to speak truth, to provide clarity, to produce peace. Speak and type constructive and clarifying words rather than destructive and confusing words. Use careful, intentional words rather than flippant, uncareful words. And see that you get a regular stream of clear, constructive, life-giving, soul-feeding words into your ears and into your heart. This is how Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. And he calls it the Lord's servant. This is first about Timothy, but it's not just about Timothy. It's also about pastors. It's also about the church, about being Christians. He says, just think of this. Think of our, of our current politicized, warlike, controversial, conflicted context. And Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. In other words, explain. When somebody understand, explain, teach, give some background. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And as Christians, we have more to guide us than just a spirit of kindness, a spirit of gentleness, a heart that wants to teach and explain and not just jump to conclusions. God has given us written words as our source and our standard. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so Paul's going to tell Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, Timothy. And in this context, he's going to tell Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God who, who, as approved, as a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Christ calls us to endure. He calls us to speak the truth with grace. And then finally, he calls us to keep the end in view. Keep the end in view as others just live in the moment. Keep the end in view. And that's the apex of the letter. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. That's what Paul's building up to. That's his final charge to Timothy. He charges him to preach the word. Then he says, my time for departure has come. And in this final section, before his closing comments and notes at the end, he twice draws attention to the coming of Christ. Verse 1, he does it, and finishes that section in verse 8 with the coming of Christ. Verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living of the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but all who have loved his appearing. So Paul keeps the end 
in view. This is what we need to do all times, but especially in this season. Christian endurance keeps the end in view. It does not just endlessly grunt it out one day at a time. It looks to the end. It looks to Christ and his daily strengthening in light of the end that is coming. So Cities Church, this pandemic will end. This life will end. This age will end. Jesus Christ is coming back, which is spectacularly good news to his people and is an untold horror to his enemies. He is coming as the righteous judge, chapter 4, verse 8, who will bring, he will be the judge of the living and the dead, chapter 4, verse 1. And he will bring full, inappropriate, and uncompromising justice to those who have rejected from him or turned or drifted from him. And he will bring rescue and he will bring reward to all those who have loved his appearing. Rescue. Chapter 4, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Chapter 4, verse 8. Reward. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, Paul says, but all who have loved his appearing. Which brings us to this table where we not only look back, but we also look forward to the end of this season, to the end of the age, when Christ comes again to justly repay his enemies and rescue and reward his people. And God gives us this table in the present for our endurance. We want to eat and drink together this morning to our endurance, that he will hold us fast. Here Christ gives us spiritual food and drink to be received by faith, to restore our souls, to brighten our eyes, to strengthen us in the grace that is in Christ Jesus so that we might endure, so that we might hold fast even as he holds us fast and not blow over in the storms and not tap out in these trying times. We're going to ask the pastors to come. We will come around and bring to you the elements. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.